All right, ladies and gentlemen, a very warm welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It is so great to see you all. Um, today is January 3rd, right? Yes, January 3rd, 2021. Wow. January 3rd, 2021, and this is Kabbalah and Coffee. I am Rabbi Ari, and you are exactly who you need to be for your mission in life and to accomplish great things today and always. So the topic today is evolution. And you might think, does Kabbalah speak about evolution? And the answer is yes. Now, does it speak about Darwinism or Darwinian? Darwinian, yeah. Darwinian evolution, maybe not. But spiritual evolution, it definitely does speak about. And let me explain. Hey, Susan, good to see you. Welcome. Let me explain. Hey, friend, also welcome. So let me explain what I mean by spiritual evolution. And I think I'm going to use an example, not a non-spiritual example, to explain what I mean by spiritual evolution. Okay, so, we're going to, so again, we're exploring spiritual evolution, and we're going to do so through a non-spiritual example. But before we do that, I need to mention, I, I, I meant to mention this uh, right at the top, but I need to mention now that this series has, has been sponsored by Ed Zinn in honor of his dear mother, the passing of his dear mother, um, Arden Zinn. She passed away on November 23rd, the seventh day of Kislev. And this series is dedicated to her loving memory. She brought uh, inspiration and spirituality to all those who knew her. And I know the learning that we do in this series is going to be a tribute to her neshama. So may it truly be so, and it be an honor to her, fam to her, to her soul, to her neshama, and to her family. Okay, so let's talk about an example of spiritual evolution using a physical um, example, a physical analogy. And the example that I want to give is the example of a seed. What's a seed? Riva asks. A seed is like, you know, in an apple, they have little seeds. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. You brought apple seeds to school. Okay, so a seed, you take a seed and you put it into the ground. What's the point? The point is not to take a seed and bury it in the ground. That's not why you're doing that. Because what's, why would you do that? Right? You had a, a, a seed, a really nice looking seed. And what are you doing with it? You're burying it in the ground. That seems like a waste. The Torah says, Baal Tashchus, you're not going to waste something. So here you have a perfectly nice looking seed and you're burying it under the ground. That seems very wasteful. But then, of course, you'll be told or you would find out that, no, it's not wasting the seed. Imagine a young child sees for the first time a farmer or a gardener digging a hole and burying a seed inside. What's wrong? Why did you bury the seed? What did it do wrong? Why are you destroying it? Farm says, no, 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 not, no. I'm not burying the seed to destroy it. On the contrary, I'm putting the seed in the ground so that the seed turns into something amazing. And what is the amazing thing that it's going to turn into? This little seed is going to turn into, this little apple seed is going to turn into an apple tree. It's going to turn into a tree that grows more apples on that tree. Wow. Right, Riva? Wow. It's amazing. Right? I'm getting some feedback, live feedback. Um, no, there's no cookie trees. 
just apple trees. So you, you can't bury a chocolate chip and then hope to get chocolate chip cookies. It doesn't work exactly like that. So, well, it's not going to work. But, but apple seeds would definitely work. But it's a good concept. It's maybe technology will get there one day. So, um, not, not Riva, but another. You're listening to the conversation? So here's the point. The, the child at first glance, at first glance, the child thinks maybe, or the person that doesn't know gardening thinks that you're destroying the seed. But until you find out that it's not a destruction, it's not a waste, it's not, it's not something that is, that is counterproductive on the contrary. The only way to get growth is by taking the seed and burying it in the ground. But what's the point? The point is that the ultimate purpose of the seed is not to remain a seed. What's the ultimate purpose of a seed? Is to transform. Or like Calvin and Hobbes used to say, transmogrify, I believe, to transform from a seed into a tree. Right? The tachlis, tachlis in Hebrew means tachlit, it means the purpose, the ultimate purpose. Right? What's the ultimate purpose? It's not to remain stuck as a seed, but it's to grow into something radically different, radically greater, if you will. A tree that gives birth to more fruit and more seeds and more trees, and the cycle continues. I was thinking, as I was thinking about today's class about evolution, because this is a form of evolution, right? A seed transforming into a tree, I'm calling that evolution. It's a seed and now it's a tree. It's evolved into something bigger and better and greater. It grows, yes. So I was thinking along, this, along these lines. Anybody familiar, raise of hand, with the book? It was written a few years ago um, by a woman named Carol Dweck. It's called Mindset. Anybody familiar with the book called Mindset? Yeah. It's, what, it's a self-help book. It's, it was a New York Times bestseller. Very, very, it's a very famous book. And the premise of the book, the premise of the book is that human beings could adopt one of two mindsets. Either we could have a fixed mindset, fixed, F-I-X-E-D, fixed mindset, or we can have a growth mindset. What's the difference? Well, a fixed mindset is, I know what I know, I am who I am, it is what it is, and that's it. In other words, fixed, stuck, right? Not moving anywhere. Yeah, a little bit movement here or there, but, but pretty much, I know what I know, I am who I am, it is what it is, and that's it. What's a growth mindset? A growth mindset is, this is what I know, and this is who I am, but I'm open to exploring. I'm open to something that I don't know yet. I'm open to learning, to discovering, to growing. I'm open. So in the context of education, for example, the goal of a teacher, the goal of a teacher is, you know, you think about what's the, what's the tachlis, I'll use the same word, what's the purpose of teaching? So you can look at it two ways. One, one, one understanding of teaching is, let's say for children, is you want to communicate, you want to teach, you know, arithmetic. One plus one is? Two. Good. Two plus two is? Four. Four. Good. Right. You want to teach arithmetic. 
Reba's almost five. She's almost turning five. Two weeks. Two weeks. So, I don't know if you guys can hear. Is the mic, does the mic pick her up? Yeah, a little bit? Yeah, okay. All right. It's totally cute. Thank you. Thank, well, she's totally cute. What can I say? <laughs> can't think any great. Um, well, she is, and we're happy to see that she can do math. This is great. She's, she's into math. Yeah, she likes her math. So, one, one tachlis, one um, goal, hashtag goals, one goal in teaching is to communicate the information, right? I, I want my kids to learn two plus two is four. And three plus three is not five, Shalom. Six, good, he's trying to throw off. No, right, six, excellent. So, so that's one goal. Another goal is, and, and, and this is where Carol Dweck's kind of philosophy would kick in. Another goal, maybe, not maybe, the big goal, the more important goal, is to inculcate within the children to inspire your students to have a growth mindset, which means to become learners and explorers and be curious and want to learn and want to grow. So it's not only about imparting information, which, you know, the kids need and the parents want because they want their kids to have the information, you know, for whatever. I'm not going to get into different philosophy in education, but, okay, so that's, it's important to have information also, but, but a major component of education is not the information, but the mindset. The psychology, what type of mindset are you developing or helping the child, the student develop? And so here's the important thing. I think it's easier as children to have a growth mindset. Because when we're children, when we're young, especially when we're really young, we almost need to know that we need to know. (laughs) Because you can't say, oh, I know everything. You're one. What do you mean you know everything? You don't even think that you know everything, right? The ego doesn't kick in yet. So when we're younger, children, it's, e- it's even easier to develop or to naturally have a growth mindset. But as children get older, and certainly as you are getting older, certainly as we become adults, right? This, I would say, this um, tension between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset becomes really, really strong, right? It becomes really strong. And, and, and there's almost a divide. I'm not saying divide within people, but a divide even within ourselves between areas in which we feel like we're still growing and areas in which we feel like, yeah, no, it's not happening. <laughs> uh, no, this, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? This is, this is who I am, and this is what I like, and this is what I know, and this is how I think, and this is how I feel, and that's it. And, and, and Carol Dweck's... Um, uh, philosophy or theory or thesis is that's a shame, and it's a, it, it, and it holds it all. This mindset holds us back because the moment we adopt the mindset of I don't know or I don't have all the answers or I can grow and I can evolve and I can adopt new ideas and new teachings, it, it benefits us in the most tremendous ways. And so that is the core of the difference between a fixed and a growth mindset. Susan, go ahead. 
that book mindset has been um, adopted and made into a curriculum for schools. Oh wow! And we, we teach it in schools now. And we found, and the research shows too, that when we tell kids they're smart, um, that actually backfires towards a growth mindset. That they get into a fixed mindset if they're told they are smart. Then if they find something that's frustrating, it trips them up and they feel like, oh, I can't do it, so that must mean I'm not smart, so I'm not going to even attempt it. So we have to really teach kids that frustration is okay, that learning is this process, that you want to have times where you're anxious and all of that. Um, and we teach them the word yet a lot. I don't understand this yet um, to get them into that growth mindset. I love that. I love that. That's very cool. That makes a lot of sense. In other words, if you're telling a child, oh, you're smart, then they want to keep that self-definition and only play in the safe areas, which they'll feel smart and not challenge themselves because what you're touching on is really a key part of this fixed versus growth mindset. You see, and this is a major piece that I, that I didn't mention. When you look at it at first glance, well, who wouldn't want a growth mindset? Like, it seems like an obvious no-brainer. Yeah, growth mindset is better than fixed mindset. So why do we get stuck in a fixed mindset? Because it feels safer. Because it's safer, and it's more comfortable, and it's less scary. Because knowing that you know, or telling yourself that you know, is safer and more comfortable than, I don't know. I messed up. I got it wrong. I don't have the answers. That's scary that's vulnerable, but that's what it takes, or that's part of the package of the growth mindset. I don't know, I don't have the answers. And in a similar way, let's go back to our seed example, because it's all about evolving into something greater, which requires vulnerability. So what happens to the seed when we put it into the ground? And this is something that Kabbalah speaks about. It's not, I'm not giving my own analogy, I'm giving an example in Kabbalah. Kabbalah says that when you put a seed into the ground, the seed disintegrates. The seed dissolves into the earth. And only then does it grow into the tree. As long as the seed remains a seed, if the seed would protect itself, right? Would hug itself and protect itself. Say, no, I'm staying a seed. I don't want to become something else. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to lose my identity or become vulnerable and say, you know, I'm not the end all and be all. If the seed would retain its identity, then nothing would happen. No growth would happen. The only way that a seed becomes a tree and a blessing that produces more fruit and more seeds and more trees, the only way that whole process happens is if the seed has the courage to let itself go and to become something radically different, to really let itself disintegrate, to let itself not be. And then it becomes the greatest. So this touches on a Kabbalistic concept that I'll share with you, and I'm gonna use the original language I'll give you the words. They're, they're in Hebrew, so they might be familiar, especially because they're used in other contexts in Kabbalah. You'll see what I mean in a second. There's a Kabbalistic phrase that goes like this. And I'm going to give it to you also in, in a combination of English words and Hebrew words. So in order to go, this is the concept, in order to go from one yesh to another yesh, you need an ayin, Be'emtza. Let me do that in all, all in English. In order to go from one 
entity, yesh is like entity or thing, to another radically different yesh or thing, you need an ayin be'emtza, you need nothing in between. Not nothing, but a conscious nothingness in the middle. Which means that growth, not step-by-step incremental growth, but radical growth, radical revolutionary evolution, right? Radical growth to go from one state to another state, I don't mean geographically, right? But from one state of being to another state of being that's radically different, you have to have an absence, a space in the middle. So the example that Kabbalah cites is a rabbi. I think it was Rabbi Zera, Rabbi Zera, a great scholar in the times of the Mishnah and the Talmud, who was moving from Bavel, Babylonia, to Israel, to the Holy Land. Now, if you know a little bit of Jewish history at that time, there were um, Jewish centers of study. There were Torah centers and Talmudic centers of study in Bavel, in Babylonia, and in Israel. Which is why, by the way, we have two versions of the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. One that was authored in, one that was authored in Bavel, in Babylonia, and one that was, off, one that was authored in um, uh, Israel. So he was moving, he was moving from Bavel, Babylonia, to Israel. And the Talmud says, I think it's Rabbi Zerah, he fasted for something like 30 days or 40 days to forget all that he had learned in Babylonia to prepare himself for his studies in Israel. Because the, the Israeli academies were on a higher level. And he knew that if he wanted to study Torah there, he had to start with a fresh slate. In other words, there was a process of prayer and fasting in order to, not literally necessarily, but to kind of start with a clean slate of, of, informa- of, of knowledge. Um, how can I uh, explain this in perhaps modern terminology? It's kind of like being... What's the word I'm looking for? No prior um, prejudice or no prior um, judgment or no prior framing. Because oftentimes when we come into a study with, you know, oh, preconception. That's what, that's what I was looking for, any preconception. Sometimes we come in with ideas and then anything that we hear, we make it fit into the boxes of knowledge and information that we already have which means that we're not actually learning something new. We're just taking information and kind of shaping it, whether it's legitimate or not, shaping it into what we already know. That's all part of a fixed mindset. That's all staying stuck within the boxes that we, that we know, our box of knowledge. But this is what Rabbi Zerah did in the, in the Talmud in those ancient times is he let go of any preconceptions. He was spiritually trying to get him and physically trying to get himself to a state where it was going to be a brand new experience. Walking in, no preconceptions, no you know, prejudice with information, just ready to learn, ready to be open to the new information. And that's what it takes to really learn and to really be open. And that's kind of like the, the seed disintegrating. Because as long as you're holding on to what, to what you are, you're not really open to what you could be. Does that make sense? 
as long as you're holding on to who and what you are, right? You're self-protecting, you're, you're hugging yourself because I, I don't want to let go. So then you're not open to what you could be that, could be, that, that perhaps could be radically different, radically greater. This is true when it comes to a seed, and it's true with Rabbi Zera, right? If he would have said, I have wisdom, I'm a scholar, I have students, I'm moving to Israel, but I'm going to come in with my scholarship and my academia and my, and my um, diplomas and my, and my essays and my published publish works, I'm going to come in and, 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 and walk into the academy, to the new academy like that. Well, that would have been nice for his ego, but it wouldn't have done anything for his growth because he would have just come in with what he knew already and probably just have more of the same. What he wanted was a radically different experience, an experience where he wasn't just learning the same things or repeating the same, the same points of information, but where he would be actually learning something brand new, learning something new and, and, and experiencing something from a different perspective. And to do that, to go from one yesh to another yesh, from one entity, one state of reality to another, radically different or greater state of reality, you need that I, you need that absence in the middle, which we would call in Kabbalah, bitl. You know what bitl is? We've talked about it before. Bitl means letting go of self, letting go of ego. It's not comfortable. It's what Susan mentioned before. It's when you tell a student, it's okay that you don't know or it's okay to challenge yourself in an area that you're not going to be the smartest one in the room. And it's not going to feel comfortable. And your ego is not going to like it because your ego likes to be smart. Your ego likes to be knowledgeable. And this is putting yourself in an uncomfortable place of not knowing, of needing to ask someone, of failing perhaps a few times until you get it right. Not knowing it yet. I like that. Teachers and Chabad rabbis, right, always use the word yet. It's like, uh, Rabbi, I don't do that mitzvah. Yet, <laughs> right, yet. <laughs> right, take it slow, right, yet, right? But it's the same concept, right? Don't box yourself in, but we do so to protect ourselves. What Kabbalah teaches, and Carol Dweck is, uh, I believe she's Jewish, and her title, I, I looked up the cover. I don't have it, I don't have it with me in, 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 in my house right now. But well, we have a copy, but it's not, not here right now. Um, the title was something, the subtitle is something like new, like new ways of learning or new methods in, in understanding how we learn. Something about new. So I was thinking in preparation for today's class, new. It sounds like she knows a little Kabbalah. I mean, new, this is like thousands of years old uh, information that we have, right? I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying that this is really like the, the whole, this whole concept is from Kabbalah. It's all, or it's all in Kabbalah. It's all in the ancient teachings of Jewish mystical thought. And that is that for true growth, uh, mindset, hold on, hold on, but let me see the subtitle. Oh, how... The new, psycho the new psychology of success. That's what I was referring to. It says, mindset, the new psychology of success. And I was thinking, new psychology of success? Maybe. The psychology of success, new? I don't know. 
I don't know if it's super new how we can f- learn to fulfill our potential. Parenting business, yeah. Yeah. So my, again, but my focus was on the word new. How new is it really? Because in truth, these are teachings from Kabbalah. Kabbalah teaches us that in order to grow, in order to really radically, you know, evolve, radically evolve, it requires an ayin be'emtza. It requires the vulnerability of saying, I don't know, or I'm not there yet. And that's how growth happens. So whether it's within a child who's learning, whether it's within an adult who's learning, whether it is within a seed transforming, transmogrifying into a tree. Either way, to go from an ayesh to a yesh, you must have the ayin in the middle. And that ayin is a scary place. The ayin is a scary place because it's letting go it's not feeling comfortable. It's putting ourselves in the uncomfortable spaces. And who wants to be uncomfortable? But if you're not uncomfortable, here's the, here's the point. If you're not uncomfortable, then are you really growing? Right? I'll ask us a question instead of making a statement. Are, are we really growing? Not you. Are we? Are we really growing if we just remain in those comfortable, stuck places? Right? Probably not. So, in summation... The point that I'm trying to bring out from this entire opening idea is that human beings are meant to grow. Human beings like seeds and trees and like, you know, like life itself, we're meant to grow and evolve in a positive way. And if that's the case, then a necessary ingredient is this idea of letting go and, 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 and embracing something greater than self. So Kabbalah speaks of this, not only in the context of seeds and trees and human being learners, right? People who are learners. But Kabbalah speaks of this on all levels of existence. And let me explain what I mean. So Kabbalah talks about the diversity of existence. Kabbalah talks about the diversity of life, which is always, to me, it's always uplifting to think about diversity amongst creation because Judaism believes that the source is one and from the one source, you have many. It's like on the, on the American money, what does it say? E pluribus unum. From many, one, which I think is indicating the idea of a nation coming together from many diverse people. But in Judaism, when we think about existence and life, it's actually the opposite. It's actually from one, many, right? From the one God, we have a lot of diversity and many different beings, a lot of diversity of of reality. And the way Kabbalah describes it, is typically divided into four categories of life. Now, this is true when it comes to the spiritual realities. There are four spiritual worlds, which we've discussed many times. The world of Atzilut, Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya, the world of emanation, the world of creation, the world of formation, and the world of action. So there are different worlds. But, but even on planet Earth, Kabbalah, and Jewish philosophy for that matter, speaks of four categories of life and these categories of life are divided 
the, what differentiates them is in their, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the four categories. We've discussed this before in previous sessions and other contexts. And, and then we're going to explore what is it that different, why are they a different category? What differentiates one from the other? So the first category of life, so we have four kingdoms. Four is, is a number that's very popular in Kabbalah. So four, the four worlds, four planes of existence, but also four categories of life on earth. The lowest category of life, and it's not a judgment, it's just you'll see how we, how we differentiate low and high. The lowest category of life on earth is what we call domain, or inanimate life. That is things that exist on planet earth that don't seem seem, that don't appear to have life. What do I mean by that? A sign of life is animation, when something moves, right? That's one sign of life is when something moves. There are certain things on earth that don't move and they don't seem to be alive. The classic example is a rock, right? A rock sitting, you know, either a big rock or a little rock, whatever, doesn't matter the size of the rock. Right, you see a rock or a stone, right? A stone, a rock sitting there, and it's not moving, it's not breathing, it's not walking, it's not growing, nothing. It's just sitting there. And so you think, yeah, this is not alive, it's just a rock. Kabbalah says, no, this is the first category of life inanimate objects, objects that do not, that are not animated, that don't have obvious movement. Now, Kabbalah says, spoiler alert, that even the rock has a soul, right? The Arizal, the great Kabbalist Rabbi Isaac Luria says, even an even domain, even a still silent rock has a nefesh, has a soul. So, of course, Kabbalah, Judaism believes that everything is, everything that's here is alive. But the way we're differentiating the categories are based on appearance, Right? So everything's alive, but how does it look? So the first category of things that are <coughs> that don't seem to be alive because they're still and silent. Like a rock, it's not talking, it's not moving, it's not walking, it's not growing. Another example, by the way, would be the earth. Like the ground. The ground that you and I walk on. Right? We walk on the earth. We tread on the ground. And not the grass, the grass is growing, but underneath the ground, right, underneath the grass, the earth itself seems dead. It seems unmoving, it seems silent, it seems still. It doesn't, it doesn't show any obvious animation, so that's category one, level one, level two. So that's domain. If you want to write it in, in, in English, D-O-M-E-M. Domem, it's uh, still and silent and quiet, not animated. The next level above that is what we would call tzomeach. Tzomeach, if you want to write that in English, it's T-Z-O-M-E, tzomeach, A-C-H, tzomeach. The benefit of that is you get the ch at the end, which is great for the, for the throat. Tzomeach, tzomeach means vegetation. So above inanimate life is vegetation. Now vegetation includes anything that grows from the ground. So 
grass and trees and flowers and plants and shrubs, even weeds, right? Anything that grows is in the category of tzomeach. So our aforementioned apple tree that grew from the seed that we put into the ground, right? That apple tree that's growing, that's tzomeach. That's not domain. That's not inanimate life. It's animated. You could see it. It's growing. It's flourishing. It's producing fruit. It's alive. Now, the stone is also alive. But when it comes to vegetation, you and I can see with the naked eye that it's alive. Again, all, a lot of this is about appearance and about perception. The next level above Tzomeach is Chai. Chai. Not um, the necklace Chai. Not the 18 Chai. But Chai meaning animals. Living beings. Living creatures. Now, animals don't just grow from small to big like trees. Right? Trees also grow. Trees grow from a little tree to a big tree. Animals don't just grow from a baby animal. Oh, a baby tiger cub into not advocating that you own a baby tiger cub, into a big, a big animal, right? Animals also are moving, roaming, eating. I mean, they're, they're moving around. There's lateral movement. If your tree is moving, watch out, right? I don't know what's going on with your tree or with you. But if your tree is hopping around, I would look into that. <laughs> you would just, you gotta look in, so, on some level, look into that. Because vegetation, category two, right? Level two of existence, vegetation is, it's moving, okay. So my son Shaya is, so that we have flowers on the table. And what he's doing is he's moving them and he's saying, look, they're moving. Well, okay. A few things. Number one, they're not attached to the ground. <laughs> Number two, they are moving. You're right. But if so, I said consult someone, but you're consulting me. So Shia, it's okay. The, the flowers will be okay. So getting back. So we have three, so far three levels. We have domain, inanimate life. It's not moving. It's not growing. It's, it seems dead. The rock, the stone, it's not doing anything. But it's alive. We know it has a soul. Okay, but, but it doesn't seem to be doing anything. Then you have vegetation, which grows, which is, which does have an obvious demonstration of life, and it grows from small to big. And then you have animal life, chai, chai, right? Which is alive. It's like obviously alive. It's breathing, it's 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 moving, it's growing, it's got all the all the signs of of real life, legit life. Then you have, then you have. Medaber, Medaber. Medaber is the speaker, the communicator, human beings. So, although the human being could be, on one level, placed in the same category as an animal, right? Because, like an animal, we start off small and grow big, and like an animal, we walk around, and like an animal, we eat and drink and be merry and all that stuff, right? Like, like there are similarities, but, but, Judaism tells us and Kabbalah teaches us that there, there are qualities within human beings that specific unique qualities that animals do not possess. And therefore, human beings are another level, medaber. 
So we have four categories, four kingdoms of life on earth. This is not a conversation about four spiritual realms or four cosmic worlds, which we could have, by the way. We could have that discussion. But we're focusing on, on, on the things in our experience that can also be divided into fours, right? Inanimate life, still silent life, right? Rocks and stones and earth, vegetation, animals, and human beings. Domain, tzomeach, chai, C-H-A-I, and midaber, M-E-D-A-B-E-R, midaber. Inanimate life, vegetation, animals, and humans. Here's the point, and this is a huge point. From the oneness of God comes the diversity of these four kingdoms. And by the way, within each kingdom and category, there are countless species and countless members of each of those families. Are you with me? So within vegetation, you have grass. Within grass, you have, I don't, I'm not a grass expert. What do I know about grass? But I know Kentucky bluegrass. Is, a, is that a grass? Or is that a music? It's a grass. Is it also music? It's also music. Whatever. Complicated. Right? So you have different types of grass. Within trees, that's going to be an easier conversation for me. Right? Within trees, you have an apple tree, a peach tree, um, and I'm out. Right? No, kidding. So you have different types of trees. So what's the point? The point is that there's tremendous diversity that emerges from... <laughs> you guys davening? <laughs> so cute. All right. So from the oneness of God, you have a tremendous diversity of life in all four categories. But here's where Kabbalah adds on one more point that relates to everything we've spoken about this morning. And that is the tachlis. What's the purpose of everything? What's the purpose of domain? What's the purpose of tzomeach? What's the purpose of chai? And what's the purpose of medaber? What's the purpose of stones and earth? And what's the purpose of vegetation? And what's the purpose of animals? And what's the purpose of the human being? It's not... And here, here's, the, here's the big idea. If you want a big idea alert flashing on the screen, big idea, big idea. The big idea is the purpose, the tachlis of everything is not to remain in your own category. The tachlis is to elevate and evolve into a category above yours. It's to grow, growth mindset. It's not about staying stuck where you are, who you are. It's about evolving into something greater than self. For example, the tachlis the tachlis, the purpose, the ultimate purpose of the earth is to support the life of vegetation. Are you with me? The earth and its nutrients should support the life of vegetation. So it, it's, its energy is now evolving and found in something higher and greater than self. And the purpose of vegetation is that it should serve something above it, namely animals. Because animals eat of the vegetation and they become filled with life and vitality. And so it lives on in a higher form of life. And animals are meant to serve human beings in various ways. And human beings, 
Human beings are meant also to evolve into something greater than self. And what does that mean for human beings? It means to grow and evolve into a spiritual connection. To connect with that which transcends all of creation, all four categories, that which is the source of all, namely God. So again, the tachlis, the ultimate purpose of a thing is to rise to a state higher than self. So that domain becomes tzomeach, tzomeach becomes chai, chai becomes medaber, and medaber becomes holy and spiritual and divine. That's the tachlis of everything. The goal of everything is to rise up higher than self. Hey, Riva. Say hi. You have a toy? Oh, so cute. Right? So, oh, what a cute little toy. Say hi to everybody. <laughs> okay. Right? So that's the point. The point is not to stay where you are. The point is not to stay in your lane. If your domain, if you are... Um, if you're, if you're earth, that's it. That's all, that's all you have in your destiny. No. If you're earth, support vegetation. And if you're vegetation, support animals. And if you're an animal, support humans. And if you're human, support God. I don't mean support in a literal sense. I mean it's grow. It's, it's, it's reach that higher level. So what does it mean for human beings on a very simple level? What does it mean? That you have ears, the toy has ears. Okay, here's what it means. It also means that, but it also means that our tachlis is <laughs> our tachlis is not to stay stuck in our stuff, not to stay stuck in human activities and concerns and all that stuff, but to give ourselves opportunity to connect with something greater than self, something holy, something divine, something godly. That's our mission. That's our tachlis. That's our ultimate achievement, is rising above self, rising outside of our own human limitations. It's kind of like the caterpillar and the butterfly, right? The cat, it starts off as a caterpillar, right? You know the book, The Hungry Caterpillar? Do you know that book? Yes? Okay. It's the caterpillar starts off as a caterpillar and then evolves, eats so many foods, and then what happens? <laughs> and then turns into a butterfly. In other words, the tachlis is to become something greater. The tachlis is to touch something higher than, than, than self. It's to touch on something more noble, more uh, higher, more transcendent than self. This is what we call spiritual evolution. Spiritual evolution means that the inanimate becomes vegetation. Vegetation becomes animal. An animal becomes human. And human becomes divine. If anything remains where it is and what it is for the duration, it's a missed opportunity. Yeah, it is what it is, but that's not, what, that's not what it's created for. It's created to touch something higher than self. Which reminds me of a story from the Talmud. The Talmud quotes a story where there was a philosopher who asked one of the rabbis, maybe even Rabbi Akiva, one of the great 
Jewish scholars of the time. So this philosopher, who wasn't steeped with Jewish wisdom, asked the, asked the rabbi, do you believe in medicine? Right, that we should treat people who are sick with medicine. And he said, yeah, of course. So he said, why? If God has decreed that they're sick, then who are you to, um, to heal, to intervene? Well, why intervention? If, if God decrees that somebody is, God forbid, ill, so why should human beings um, intervene? And I know we have multiple doctors here, and all the doctors are thinking, like, Ay, what, what, kind of, uh, what kind of question is that? But it's a question that this fellow asked the rabbi. So how did the rabbi answer? The rabbi says, so do you eat bread? He says, yeah, of course. He says, how dare you? You take the wheat that God made and you grind it and you mix it with something else and you transform it into something else and then you bake it and you make it into bread? How dare you take God's, you know, God's wheat and, 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 and uh, make it into something else? In other words, what was his point? Of course, you answer a question with a question and, you know, whatever, that's the Jewish way. But what's the point of, of his answer? His answer is, although God created categories, God created things a certain way, part of God's call to us is to take that stuff <laughs> and improve it and transform it. Where we take wheat... And we make it into flour and we make it into bread. We take, I don't know, other stuff and make it into medication, right? We take the stuff of the world and we don't just say, well, this is the way it is. That's a fixed mindset. Fixed mindset is, this is the way it is. We're not going to touch it. It's a fixed mindset. Judaism and Kabbalah tells us that life is lived, life needs to be lived with a growth mindset. God has given us the tools. What can we do with it? God didn't say, don't move. I'll be back. Right? Don't touch anything. God said, don't touch the tree, one tree. But otherwise, our job is shamra, to work the garden and to protect the garden, which means an active, dynamic relationship with the garden, with the space that we're in. And it means space. We're in space. We're in space. It means creating something incredible out of what we have. It's creating food from raw ingredients. It's creating medication out of whatever medication is created out of, right? Out of bacteria or whatever. I'm antibiotic, I'm thinking. Right, it's about creating something great out of something else. And that is the human calling. But it's also the calling of all forms of life. It's to evolve. And it's to grow into something greater than self. So again, getting back to my four categories. So the inanimate grows into the vegetable, vegetation. The vegetation grows into the animal. The animal grows into the human. And the human grows into the divine. If anything remains stuck where it is, well, it can hug itself and say, I'm okay, I'm where I am, I'm who I am. But it's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity of growth that is a part of why we're here in the first place. Growth mindset is not just for students. It's not just for humans. Growth mindset is for all of creation. All of creation is meant to go higher, which takes us back to that forbidden fruit. It takes us back to Eden, because our text is called Overcoming Folly. 
And as you know from our previous sessions, yes. Okay, so go go rest. Okay, don't rest. So well, what we know from our previous sessions is that is that at the core of mistakes are rationalizations. We tell ourselves something in our heads that allows us to do something not so wise, right? How do we end up making mistakes and doing, I don't mean mistakes, you thought something or whatever, but like errors of judgment that you look back later and you say, what was I thinking, right? But you, you knew it was wrong when you were doing it, right? We know it's wrong when we're doing it, but in the moment we told ourselves a story to get ourselves past that checkpoint. We told ourselves a story to get past over the hump, so to speak, and, and, and throw ourselves into it. So the first story, the first mistake that we have is Adam and Eve. What happened with Adam and Eve? The Torah tells us something very simple. They saw that it was good. In other words, it looked good to the eyes. They wanted it because it looked good. That's the first category of folly that we're talking about. Why'd you do it? It looked good. It looked good. So how do we combat the it looked good-itis? I'm creating an itis out of it. How do we combat the it looked good? It looked good. It seemed good. It felt good. How do we combat that? With the meditation. What's the meditation? Because we have to counter the rationalization or the, 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 oh wait, here. I think done. One second. We have to combat and counter the rationalizations, that, that thought process that gets us into trouble with a thought process that can get us out of that trouble in the moment, not later on, because that's too late. Not too late, but that's, for our purposes, that's too late. We want to we catch it before we go over that, you know, before we head into the, into the negative place. So how do we do that? So he says there's two meditations to think about. Number one, or number one. The first meditation is, is this the good that's appropriate for me as a human being? Right? Is this what's really good for a human being? Yes, speaking about Adam and Eve. Yeah, the fruit of the tree looks good, but is that what I should be aspiring to? I should be aspiring to, as we said last week, there are different levels of pleasure. I should be aspiring to a concert. I should be aspiring to doing a favor for someone. I should be aspiring to studying a, 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 a beautiful wisdom or studying Torah. I should be aspiring to something higher on the pleasure chain. I don't want to say food chain because food is at the bottom of it. Right? We should be aspiring to something higher. Food is not a chain. Good. So we should be aspiring to something. Reva said, food is not a chain. I agree with you. Chains are on backpacks. This is all, all of this is true. So we should be aspiring to something higher than and greater than the, the lower elements of our existence, of our, of, of our surroundings. Look at that. So that's the, first, that's the first thing that we can do to catch ourselves, right? The first thing is, right, am I really so, like, I, I, my brain is so into this pleasure, in this moment, this physical pleasure, that I can't think straight? 
that I can't, like, I'm so seduced by the forbidden fruit, whatever that is, right? I'm so seduced by the forbidden fruit that I can't think straight. I can't wrap my head around, like, how, what is this really? And, and is this good or is this not good? Or is this harmful or devastating or destructive? I can't even think about that because I'm so caught up with, the phys- with, with how this thing looks. That, that, that's completely throwing me off kilter. That's what, so the first step is, wait a second, I'm a human being, and a human being has higher, asp- should have higher aspirations. I should have higher, higher goals than just food and other physical pleasures. Whether it's music, whether it's doing a kindness to someone else, whether it's studying something, whether it's studying Torah, but something higher than just this base physical pleasure. Now, Important caveat, as we mentioned last week. Number one, two, two important caveats, two disclaimers. Number one, nothing wrong with eating. Number two, and, and part of that is nothing wrong with eating good food, right? But the problem is, if we're doing so at our own peril, like Adam and Eve did, at our own peril, if we're, and it's not only food, it's other forms of physical pleasure, right, that could bring us down, and the question is, are we so caught up in that that we can't think straight? So the first checkpoint is, when it comes to us looking at something physical and saying, wow, that looks good. I want some of whatever that is, right? The first question that we have to ask ourselves, the meditation that we should think about is, is this, as a human being, is this what I should be running after, right? There are higher forms of pleasure that are deeper and more meaningful and more lasting than just the food, the apple, or whatever it is that I'm going to eat right now, right? The forbidden fruit, right? So I should be focused on something greater, not something lower. So that's meditation number one. Meditation number two, which we have not yet talked about, which I've alluded to up until this point today. Meditation two is what we're going to learn today. And I'll give you the short version of it. Meditation two is... The purpose of my being is not about pleasure. It's not about feeding self. It's about transcending self. As we said in this whole introduction today, for the first hour of this class, it's all about evolving into something greater than self, spiritual evolution. Right? The purpose of life, as understood through the lens of Kabbalah, The Kabbalists will tell us the purpose of life for any form of life is to rise higher than where you currently are. For a human being, that means to touch upon the divine, the spiritual. So as long as we're caught up in the physical stuff, that is a distraction and it takes us away from what we should really be focused on. So if we find ourselves in the space of I need to eat the forbidden fruit. Like, I need to have it. I need to have it. So one meditation is, is this really what we should be having? Second meditation is, forget all this stuff. My purpose is a divine purpose. My purpose is to transcend the level of human and to touch the divine. So let me focus on something that's really worth my time, that's really worth my energy, that really speaks to my purpose. And I understand that this is a bit of a lofty, this is a loftier meditation than the first. The first just says, this is at the bottom of the food chain or at the bottom of the pleasure chain. So let me look at something higher. 
The second meditation is all of the pleasure seeking is a distraction to what we're really supposed to be focused on, which is about transcending self. It's about elevating higher than, than who we are naturally. All right, we're going to do this inside. And you'll see inside it's going to be written much better than the way I'm explaining it. So you're able to read it and understand it and meditate on it in the words themselves. But before we do it inside, let me check in and, and, and open up the floor. Any questions, comments, clarifications? Donna, go ahead. Hi, yes, thank you. So I have kind of two questions. One, I know you said food is okay, it's not, but I mean, we need, as human beings, we're not strong enough. We need some pleasures to keep us going, you know, that kind of thing. And the other thing, can you, in my mind, like the rock, what it's contributing to, to us uh, is what, is its own energies, its, its beauty? Is... Yeah, excellent. two excellent questions. So number one, I agree with you. Human beings, we're not perfect, and we do need pleasure to keep us going, and we take pleasure in, in lots of things, including food. And there's nothing inherently trafe or, or wrong with that. But remember, these meditations are helping us get out of the destructive actions with the food or with the other pleasures. So when we find ourselves rationalizing, right, an activity in one of these areas, whether it's food or otherwise, that is not good, right, spiritually, physically, or otherwise. Again, the, example, the core example that we're using is Adam and Eve. God... God would have been very happy for them to enjoy and to have pleasure from other fruit that's permitted. The problem is that they saw the forbidden fruit that it looked good. And then it looked good. I have to have it. So the first thing, the first meditation is it looks good. It looks pleasurable. You have to have it. You don't have to have it. Right? You want pleasure? There are other forms of pleasure. Now, does that mean that all pleasure in food is no good? No. Forbidden, forbidden fruit is no good, right? But this is all a meditation to help us get out of that. You know, when we're fixated on something, a lot of times it's really hard to not be fixated on it. Like, we really want it and we're all locked in and we, can't, we almost can't think of anything else. We have to have it until we have it. And then we're like, oh, why did I do that? Right? And then we kick ourselves. So the question is, how do we get, and this is the whole purpose of this text that we're studying. It's how do we get ourselves out of that initial fixation? I need to have it. 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 And then you have it. It's like, oh, why did I do that? That was a mistake. You knew it was a mistake all along, right? We knew it was a mistake all along. But part of us was fixated on it. We needed to have it. So how do we break, how do we break that I need to have it? How do we break that? So he says, what's the first reason why you need to have it? Because it looks good. Okay, perfect. So then tell yourself, it looks good. It looks pleasurable. There are other pleasures that are better. In other words, if you're in the moment of pleasure seeking, let me listen to some Mozart. right? Let me uh, study something. Let me study some Torah. Break, break that fixation on the forbidden pleasure by telling yourself there's a higher form of pleasure anyway. So what, I need to run after this one? You see, it's about being smart with ourselves. This is all about, this is all Kabbalah psychology. 
This is, what, this is what's going on here, right? It's about getting into our heads and, and training our minds to think in a different way in order to avoid negative choices. That's what it is. How do we avoid the negative choice? The negative choice happens in our heads, mainly. So, so how do we get out of that? By getting a different script, narrative, story in our heads. We have to tell us, we have to have new information in our heads to fight against the old information, which is, I need to have it. It looks good. It tastes good. I need to have it. So the new information is, come on, is this the best you can do? Right? Is this the best you can do? What about music? What about uh, chesed, kindness? What about um, wisdom? What about Torah? So that's the first meditation. And again, the second meditation, which we're going to share um, in a moment, is, or in a few moments, is pleasure. What about purpose? Self-pleasure. What about elevation? What about transcendence? What about evolution into something greater? I don't want to re remain a seed for the rest of my life. I want to become a tree. Well, and, and again, what that means for a human being means I don't want to remain stuck here. I want to touch the divine. So let me forget about this forbidden fruit and let me work on that pursuit. Now, that's, I think that answers your first question. Your second question was, remind me of your second question. Stones. What, what are stones? Yes. Good, good, good. Excellent. Good. So, first of all, we know what stones are for. Stones are for the Kabbalah jewelry that we do. So that's for sure, right? The Jewish jewelry that Donna, that you create, right? That's for sure what stones are for without a doubt. Kabbalah speaks specifically about the earth and vegetation. That's the example that Kabbalah uses. So when it comes to inanimate life that's meant to evolve higher into vegetation, specifically use the example of the earth that supports the nutrients of the earth are supporting vegetable life. The vegetation supports animal life. And so it, in the examples in Kabbalah, I have not seen specifically stones being used in the analogy. But to me, we can apply it on our own. There's no, there's, just because it's not stated doesn't mean we can't apply it. So stones would do any number of things to support something, so, quote-unquote, greater than self. And by the way, that whole notion of greater than self, we have to be careful because we're not making a judgment about the essence of that thing. We're just saying that a thing is complemented when it can leave itself and rise beyond its own, its own, um, its own limitations. That itself is something noble and something powerful. When a thing can, 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 can self-transcend or transcend self. Dr. Maxi. Also, just thinking about stones, in my mind, the other thing is, is that each of us as human beings, there are essential minerals. And so those come from those stones. And you may consume it either via plant or via animal, or you can, in some instances, consume it directly. But in my mind, that's the other purpose of stone, are the minerals that are essential for us to be human. Yes, 100%. That's a great, that's a great, uh, that's a great example. Yeah, minerals. Yeah, Tony agrees. Great analogy. Yes, that's perfect. Right? And, and, and it's cool how it could either come to us directly or through 
the plant or through the animal, right? And, and it, so it's not, it's not stuck. And that's, I think that's an important piece of what's coming from this, from Donna, from your question in this conversation is it's not only literally this way to that way, that way to that. It, there's a lot of flexibility in it. But the point is that, um, that, that, that it does support something and it does evolve into something, if you will, greater than self. Along those lines, I remember speaking, I was in Yeshiva, this was in Morristown, New Jersey, and there was a fellow there who was a vegetarian, and he, his philosophy was, and I love this, he was always like, look, you're eating an animal, where's the animal getting its nutrition from? From the vegetation. So bypass the animal, right? Go straight to the, again, I'm not, I'm not weighing in here or there, right? I'm not, I'm not getting it, you know, it's, it's not, not for now, this conversation, um, but it's an interesting perspective. I will say, just on that note, that before, that originally, to Adam and Eve, animals were actually forbidden to eat, to consume. Adam and Eve and those first generations were not allowed to eat, um, <laughs> Steve, were not permitted to eat, um, <laughs> were not permitted to eat, um, to eat uh, animals. It was only after the flood, God tells Noah, all right, I let you, I let you eat uh, animals. Anyway, but that's, that's, again, for another conversation. But either way, whether we're eating animals or not eating animals, the tachlis, the ultimate of an animal, is to also support a higher endeavor, a higher than self. Whether it's the wool of an animal being spun into a talit, a prayer shawl, or whatever, right? There's, there's ways in which the animal is part of a higher, a higher process. And by the way, we see this in the mitzvot. I just mentioned the mitzvah of, of, of a talit, tzitzit, yeah, mitzvot in general, Adam is asking, so what did Adam and Eve eat at Shabbat? I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. Were they allowed to eat fish? Possibly. Maybe gefilte fish. <laughs> the original, the original gefilte fish eating by Adam and Eve. You know where you get gefilte fish, right? From Lake Gefilte. You know this, right? I've told, I, I, some of you heard me say this before. Lake Gefilte. It's easy to go gefilte fish um, fishing. Because the fish can't even move. They're in this jelly, and you just scoop it with a jar, and it's, it's like the easiest fishing that you've ever done. That's a joke. If you get it with the jar of gefilte, if you get the, the thing. Also, how do you identify gefilte fish? You know this one, right? It's, got, it's the fish with the carrot on its back. That's, that's the one. Okay. All right. Back into our conversation. Susan, go ahead. So really quickly, last week when you were ranking the pleasures, yes, um, I got really tripped up on the second one being just music. And so I had to download the book and I also ordered it oh, nice. so that I could really read through and kind of see like what, what did that mean? Music is the second pleasure. And I was wondering if it really meant like all things like that's created by humans that we can enjoy, enjoy like above what like animals can enjoy because that would be the first ranking of pleasures what animals the pleasures that animals get as well so the second would be anything that humans create and humans enjoy like art architecture music would be included in that yeah and i was also thinking that maybe it was about you know that when we create that flow and energy of creation of things that are you know, you know, well, we create beauty in art. I, I don't know. I just really got, got tripped up on that and had to explore it. Yeah. So first of all, I'm glad you downloaded the book and I'm glad you got it. 
And I, I want, did you see my name in it in the uh, intro? Uh, no. Okay, whatever, you have to look, you look for <laughs> I'll it. I'll go back and look. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's, here's the point. Um, so, so yes, music, art, right? It would all be part of that category of higher pleasures. So again, this is the, the ranking, like we explained last week, the first level, the lower it is, the more you don't need to be human to enjoy it or to have it. So food, you don't need to be human to enjoy it or to have it. Music, architecture, art, literature, right? these are things that are already human, uniquely human. And then higher than that is you know, giving of self and chesed and kindness and selfless giving. And then higher than that is wisdom and education. And higher than that is a divine connection. So yeah, these are, yes, music would not just be music. It would be part of a larger, a bit of a larger landscape of, of, of things that are uniquely human pleasures and beauties. Yeah. That's Definitely. what I thought, and but I, when I read it, it did say just music. It did so say music. I, I kind of expanded yeah. that. It did say music. I also, in my head, expanded it, and I'm glad that you mentioned it because it's 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 important that we that we rank it, especially if 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 all of this is meant to be put into practice and for us to have a meditation. Then it's like if I find myself fixated on something, yeah, let me uh, let me paint something. Let me you know let me let me express my my desire or passion in another way, in a healthier outlet or a higher outlet that's not, uh, that's certainly that's not in the forbidden category as it might otherwise be using the example of Adam and Eve. If Adam and Eve would have, you know, pulled out a canvas and painted something, right? Or if they would have, uh, you know, played some music, right? Created an instrument and played some music, you know, maybe, maybe we would still be in paradise. And then what? I don't know. You know, it's complicated when you think of, you know, what, what could have been. But it, it's certainly the idea of they saw the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and it looked good, so they had to have it. That's not a healthy formula. I mean, and, and for us, it's not healthy. We, we, I, I, I don't need to tell anybody this. We know ourselves more than anybody else. We know for ourselves how often it's happened in our lives that we saw something, we had to have it, and then we kicked ourselves later for doing it. Like, why did I do it? What, 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 I really needed it? Come on. But we get stuck, we get stuck, and we can't think straight. Point is, how do we think proactively, preemptively? How do we get more, feed more information in our heads so that when the moment, when that crisis hits, we have something else to think about? Um, who just, did somebody do Somebody's hand was just raised. Dr. Max Giordano, did one of you, no? No. Okay. All right. So let's jump inside. Uh, let me make sure I still have my PDF open. I mean, it should be. Let's double check. Ba -ba -dum. Oh, yes. Okay. For those that have the book or the download themselves, it's on page 36 of the book, Overcoming Folly. And I'm going to share my screen with you. Right now. Okay, I'm going to make it a little bit larger so that we can all see and I'll read it on our screen. I'm going to read this. Elevation of every creation. Here we go. Every creature in this world has a specific mission. Which, 
I'm going to use some different words, which constitutes its purpose. Again, every creature has a mission, and that mission is its purpose. And purpose, by the way, the Hebrew is tachlis, the word, the word that I've been sharing with you up until now. Tachlis, the purpose. So every creature has a mission, that mission being its purpose. So it's not just a mission, oh, go ahead and do this or that and bonus points. No, 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 no. That mission is the only reason why it's here. Its fulfillment, he says, is realized when it ascends to a state higher than its own. So fulfillment is realized when it ascends to a state higher than its own. And that's what I was telling you before. The vegetable becomes assimilated in the animal. The animal becomes one with the human. He skipped, by the way, the mineral into the vegetable. The mineral becomes assimilated in the vegetable. Why did he skip it? I don't know. But he, in the order, he skipped the one, level one and two. He started with level two becoming into three. So the, the mineral becomes a vegetable. The vegetable becomes assimilated into the animal. The animal becomes one with the human. And the human is fulfilled. What's the fulfillment of the human? When his spirit ascends and becomes one with the spiritual that is above him. So this, again, just to be very clear, this constitutes the specific mission of every creature and thereby its purpose. So the mission of the vegetable is to become assimilated within the animal. The mission of the animal is to become assimilated within the human being. The mission of the human being is to become assimilated with the divine. And that is the purpose of that being. To illustrate. And here's the example of how a human being can become one with the spiritual. How do we become one with the spiritual? To illustrate. Torah is the intelligence and will of God and is indeed one with God. When man, again, not gender specific, when a human being studies Torah, immersing himself or herself in its profundity and seeking out the true meaning of its teachings, in other words, when we immerse ourselves into Torah study and we're all in and our minds are all into the Torah that we're studying, then the person becomes one with God's will and intellect in an intense unity. Tanya chapter 5 discusses this at, at some length. So again, let me summarize what, he's, what we're saying so far. When you and I study Torah, which, spoiler alert, we're doing right now. When we study Torah and our minds are all in, it's immersed, our minds, our intelligence, our wisdom is completely immersed to understand and decode divine wisdom and divine will, what God wants from us and how God thinks. We're studying Torah. At that, at that moment, at that moment, our minds are connected with Torah and Torah is connected with God. That's how we rise above the physical and touch and become assimilated within a spiritual experience. In this manner, he says, next paragraph, in this manner, the soul of man can ascend through, can ascend through binding and merging itself with divine wisdom. In other words, what is the ascent of humankind? How do we ascend? So the mineral supports the vegetation. That's easy to, under, 
to understand, right? But how do we integrate with the divine? What does that mean? What do we do? <laughs> what, what, what app do I download? How, how do I become assimilated in the divine? What do I do? So here's one, here's one answer. Studying Torah, right? When we study Torah, our minds are melded, merged within divine wisdom. Divine wisdom is divine. There you go. So in this manner, he says, I'm just going to repeat this first, the, the, opening, this, the opening of this last paragraph. In this manner, the soul of man can ascend through binding and merging itself with the divine wisdom. So it's bound and merged with divine wisdom. This is true. Now, he's, going to, he's about to say this. Let me stop sharing for a moment so I can see you. He's going to explain that this is true of whatever sections of Torah we're studying. In general, I need to explain this before we continue inside. In general, Torah is divided into two categories. What we call in Kabbalah the revealed Torah and what we call the hidden Torah. Revealed Torah is the Talmud, Jewish law. Hidden Torah is the Kabbalah, what you and I study, right? Well, we could also study other stuff, but what you and I are studying right now. So the revealed parts of Torah are, for example... Um, the laws of Passover. Eat matzah, have a seder, Rosh Hashanah, blow the shofar. It's all about the, the rules and regs, right? Rules and regulations and the rituals. And it's, it's not just the law. It's also the philosophy behind the law. And it's, you know, back and forth. You study Talmud, you get, you know, all this uh, rigorous wisdom and study. But all of that is part of what we call the revealed Torah. Revealed because... It's relatively easy to jump in and study it. Then you have what we call the hidden Torah. The hidden meet the secrets of Torah. And that's, as you probably know, and as I said a moment ago, that's the Kabbalah. The Kabbalah is the part of Torah that wasn't always revealed for the Mass. It wasn't always accessible. It's the hidden parts. It's also similar to the human being. Think about it. What are the revealed... Think about yourself. What's your revealed part... And what's your hidden part? Your revealed part is your body. Because if somebody looks at you, they see your body. What's your hidden aspect? Your, your, your secret? That's your soul and your spirit. Not to say that you can't share your personality and your spirit with someone else. Of course you can. But when you look at somebody from across the room, right? The first thing you notice is the revealed aspect, which is the external, and it's only later and through a process that you get to know the secret, the hidden, inner aspect of that person. And in a similar way it is with, with, with Torah. Torah has a body and a soul. The body of Torah, the laws, the rules, the regulations, right? The philosophy, all of that is the outside. And what's the inside? What's the soul of Torah? The Kabbalah when we speak about God and about the soul and about purpose, the deeper stuff, right? The deeper stuff. What you and I study Sunday mornings here at Kabbalah and Coffee. So what he's about to say is, when we talk about a human being, the tachlis, the ultimate purpose of the human being, of everything in life, is to ascend. And a human being's purpose is to ascend to the state of divine, right? Everything is meant to upgrade one, Right? Rise at least one level. So what's for the human being? Where do we go? We go to merge with the divine. What does that mean? So we said now, a moment ago, we said it means to study Torah. One way is to study Torah. Because when we study Torah, our minds are connected and merged and melded 
with God, with divine wisdom. He's about to say this is true whether we study the revealed aspects of Torah or whether we study the mystical parts of Torah. Either way, we're touching on divine will and wisdom. Either way. In other words, it's not only when we study Kabbalah and we study about God and about the soul and about purpose and about all these deep things that we're melding and becoming unified with God. Even when we're studying Halacha, even when we're studying the more technical, legality, legal teachings of Torah, we're at that moment also unified as one with divine will and wisdom. That's what he's about to say. Let's read this inside. Here we go. Um, this is true. You see it's the second sentence right over here in this last paragraph. Let me... Here we go. This is true in whatever aspect of Torah the person is occupied. Right? So it doesn't matter which Torah class you're attending. Whether it's the Talmud class on Tuesdays or the Kabbalah class on Sundays. Literally, we have examples of this at IJA, at Intel Jewish Academy, right? It doesn't matter. Whatever you're studying in Torah, you are ascending in that moment or in those moments to a higher status. To divine status. This is true in whatever aspect of Torah the person is occupied. Whether the revealed Torah or the inner hidden Torah. Whether it's Halacha, Jewish law, or Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. And he breaks down one at a time. What happens when we study the revealed part of Torah? What happens when we study the secrets of Torah? Let's go. One at a time. The revealed Torah is actually God's will and intellect. Because it is the divine wisdom that decrees that one thing is kosher, while another thing is puzzle. By the way, kosher and puzzle doesn't mean, kosher doesn't mean literally with food. It means okay or not okay. So for example, Torah says, Halacha says, Jewish law says, that when you build a sukkah, listen to this, when you build, a, you know a sukkah, right? The booth, right? The, on the Halib Sukkot. When you build a sukkah, it cannot be taller than, I think it's 20 amos, or 20 amot, 20 cubits, which is about 30 feet. You can't build the walls higher than 30 feet. Why? Because when you do that, then people are not going to look up and see the schach, see the roof. And an important part of the sukkah is that you notice the, the foliage on the roof. Everybody with me on this? Yeah? Sukkah has the, 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 the plants, the foliage on top. So an important part of, 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 the, of the mitzvah, of, of the sukkah, of building the sukkah is that people should notice that. Also, if it's so high, the walls are going to be providing the shade and not the roof. Are you with me? The schach won't be providing. Think about it technically, right? If you have very high walls, then the walls themselves would be blocking the sun from the people that are all the way at the bottom over there, and not necessarily, only at high noon, I guess, would the roof, the schach, actually be fulfilling that function, and, and the schach is meant to be doing that. That's the function that it's meant to serve. Either way, Halacha says that you can't build a sukkah. Jewish law says, it's in the Mishnah and the Talmud, Jewish law says, tractates sukkah, actually, it's called sukkah. Um, you cannot build a sukkah with walls higher than 30 feet, 20 cubits. Great. Now, you and I just did an experiment. We just studied the reveal part of Torah. See, in the middle of Kabbalah, you and I studied a Jewish law together. Look at that. 
no, no extra charge, right? We studied a, um, a, a law. Now, what happened at that moment? We were studying Torah like a moment ago, right? I told you a law. We studied it together. You understood it. 20 cubits, 30 feet. I gave you two reasons for it. Number one, you're not going to see the schach. Number two, the schach, the roof, the, 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 the foliage roof is not going to serve its function as providing shade. Therefore, it's no good. When you and I study this right now, we're not just studying a law about a sukkah. You and I are touching and divine wisdom. Why? Because it's actually God's will and intellect. It's the divine wisdom that decrees that one thing is kosher, i.e. a sukkah, below 20 cubits, below 30 feet is kosher. And another thing, a sukkah taller than 30 feet, 20 cubits, is possible, not valid. That's not something that you and I are coming up with. That is divine wisdom. It's taken from, it's sourced in Torah, which means divine wisdom is dictating that this is okay and that's not okay. So when you and I are studying it, we're not just studying any intellectual idea. We're studying divine wisdom and divine will. What God wants and what God doesn't want. God wants us to have a kosher sukkah and this is what that means. And he continues to say, all of the novel contributions of a conscientious Torah student. Ah, what happened here? Nope. We're given... To Moshe at Sinai. That is, he's going to explain this, all of the laws of the oral Torah and all the explanation and rationales offered for them are actually also God's wisdom. This is important. What he's saying is it's not just the five books of Moses that, are, that constitute divine wisdom, but it's all of the other contributions and additions in the vast body of Jewish scholarship are also considered to be divine wisdom. Why? This is important to explain. Because they were all given to Moshe at Sinai. Anything that's authentic, even if it's come up in latter generations or in later after the times of Moses, they're all considered to be given to Moses at Sinai. At Sinai. What does that mean? When God gave the Torah to Moshe, to Moses, God gave him a written script plus explanations plus a formula by which new laws and ideas can be derived and extrapolated from the text. And so when we follow the protocol and we arrive at Torah true, authentic conclusions, that's considered also to be God's Torah. Why? Because God gave us the foundation and the formula that we're applying to arrive at this conclusion. Does that make sense? So it's not like Rabbi Akiva, that's Rabbi Akiva's law. No, it's God's law that Rabbi Akiva followed the process to bring out. Does that make sense what I just said? So it has the same status, if you will, as divine wisdom and divine will when followed authentically. Right? If somebody just says, I think this, I'm making it up out of nowhere, then that's Rabbi Ari's idea. Right? If I make up something, I say, you know what? I think that what we should do is we should have a new holiday and we should do this observance. And I'm going to make that part of Judaism. That's great, but it's not. That can't be called divine wisdom and will, unless it's sourced in 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 Torah somehow. So if it's sourced in Torah, then it has then it has authenticity. Then it has then it falls into this category. What he's trying to say is that when you and I study the law of the height of a sukkah, when we when you and I studied this a moment ago, a few moments ago, 
even if this is explored and explained in the mission of the Talmud, it's, it's considered divine wisdom. Even though it's not written, let's say it's not expressly written in the Torah itself, your sukkah shall be under 20 cubits, but the understanding of what a sukkah is and the reason for the sukkah, which is explained in Torah, di- dictates that it be a certain, uh, certain dimensions. And therefore, when the sages codified the dimensions, they did so based on the understanding of Torah, of what a sukkah is and why it is. And therefore, that becomes divine win- will and wisdom. So the point is, when we study that, here we go. Therefore, let, let me actually read it inside. Therefore, when a person studies them, these laws, he becomes, he or she becomes united and merged with this divine wisdom as we noted before. So, whether we're studying the revealed Torah, we become connected with God and we, come, and we merge with the divine, even if it's explanations of the Torah that are authentic, we become merged with the divine. Now we get to Kabbalah, which I know we're a few minutes after 11, but give me two, three minutes and we're going to wrap up. But we have to get into Kabbalah today because we have to talk about what we're talking about, right? We have to reflect on what we're studying. This is going to get meta. So the inner aspect is the, not, the inner aspect of Torah. So that was all the body of Torah. What about the inner aspect of Torah? What about the secret of Torah? What about the soul of Torah? That is the knowledge and comprehension of God. Kabbalah. Our teachers, the rabbis of early generations, reveal to us that this is the inward aspect of divine wisdom. It's not the external aspect that God wants a sukkah 20 cubits and below. God wants us to notice the schach or the schach to give shade to us inside the sukkah. No, no, no. This is the soul of divine wisdom. This is the spirit of Torah. When studying it, when studying Kabbalah, one binds himself or herself with the inwardness of God's wisdom, which far transcends the external. This is the advantage of studying Kabbalah over the other parts of Torah. Now, to be very clear, when we study any part of Torah, we become connected with God. When we study the laws of Torah, we definitely become connected with God. But he's saying when we study the soul of Torah, it elevates us to an even deeper place, to touching, not just merging with God's wisdom and will, but God's innermost wisdom, God's deepest wisdom. When we study Kabbalah, we become connected with God's deepest wisdom. And that's how a person elevates from human status to divine status. No, we don't become God. But in that moment, in that moment, we become integrated, we become connected or plugged into something greater than self. That's a good example, plugged into. What are we plugged into? Are we plugged into... The lower stuff or the higher stuff, right? It's not just lower or higher. Are we plugged into human stuff or divine stuff? This constitutes the purpose of our existence and every existence's existence to rise above its category, its status, and to touch something greater than self. Let's do one more paragraph and then we are going to close it out. One more paragraph. Stay with me. There is another advantage in this knowledge of the inner Torah. Not just we're touching on a deeper dimension of God's wisdom, but the way it affects the person. And that is its effect on the person. In other words, the difference between learning the laws about a sukkah and studying Kabbalah, it has a different effect on us as human beings. I mean, if you want to build a sukkah, you have to know how to build a sukkah. But its effect on our character 
is different when you study Kabbalah. Although this knowledge of Kabbalah is limited to knowledge of God's existence, in other words, we're not really going to ever know from the inside out who God is and what God is, so it's all about knowing about God. Nonetheless, the person's mind who's studying Kabbalah does conceive and attain knowledge of the existence of the spiritual. We become, our minds become filled with knowledge and a perception of the existence of the spiritual realms. The spiritual then becomes palpable. It becomes tangible, as it were, within his soul. He becomes bound up with it. This is all when we study Kabbalah. Attached to it, and as a result, he transcends his own physical nature and attains a state of refinement and spirituality. And that is the key. That is the second point. Point number one, I gave two different points before. These are two points within what we're talking about right now, about the advantages of studying Kabbalah over the revealed parts of Torah. Number one, it's a deeper It's the inwardness. It's the core of God's wisdom. Number two, it's effect on the person. A person becomes (coughs) more edel, more refined, and more spiritual when we study Kabbalah. You study Nigla, you study the revealed parts of Torah, you become wise, and you become sharp, and you become knowledgeable in the law. But when you study Kabbalah, you become a mensch. You become more of a refined human being. This attainment is inward and personal. In other words, it works from the inside out, both within his own self and also externally in reference to all his interests and activities. So within ourselves, we become more refined and also our interests and activities and actions are more refined. They all become more refined and spiritual. They are not bound up with the physical at all. They rise above awareness of self. And look at what he says in the parentheses, which by the way, in the original, in the parentheses is Yiddish. This is a Yiddish quote. I'm not going to read in the Yiddish, we're going to translate it. Whatever he does, whether he studies Torah or performs a mitzvah, he does it in a refined way, without coarseness, without self-consciousness. No, without conceit. Self-conscious is not a good translation. I know my name is on the book, but I'm, I'm changing a translation here. Without conceit, without being blatant. Blatant means without ego and without complacency. It goes without saying that his piety is not evident to others, to another. In other words, look how pious I am. And by no means would he consider doing something for the sole reason to impress anyone. How often could it be possible that somebody in Shul will pray the Amida a little bit longer just in case someone's noticing how long they're praying the Amida for? Oh, look at that guy. He's praying long. He must really mean it. He must be a very spiritual dude, right? That's not authentic. So studying Kabbalah allows us to become through and through spiritual and refined and authentic and not about ego. His material affairs, that's with spiritual stuff. And what about the physical stuff? His material affairs will, of course, be divested of their materialistic emphasis. This is what Mariana said yesterday, uh, last week. Right When we eat, it won't just be about eating, it will be about a larger picture, for he will rid himself of any desire for them, his, desire, his only desire being for godliness. Now, so it will never be about the food only and the experience of, of eating. It will be about a bigger spiritual picture. So what's the point? We said a lot of new information here. At the end, I want to I bring everything back and make it, make it I, wanna be, I want you to be, and, and me to be able to walk away and really have a grasp on what we're talking about. Very simple. Here's a few points. Point number one, everything has a category. Point number two, the goal, the tachlis, the ultimate goal of everything, of every category of creation is to rise up, to rise above. Point number three, 
the tachlis of the human being, the ultimate purpose of the human being, you and I, is to rise above this, even if it's okay, even if it's amazing, to rise above this and to plug into the divine, plug into something more spiritual. How do we do this? He gives one example, studying Torah. And this is true, he says, whether we study the revealed parts of Torah or Kabbalah. Reveal parts of Torah, like Jewish law and Jewish ritual, when we study that, we plug into God, God's will and wisdom. What does God want from us? How do we do the mitzvah? And how does God think about what's okay and what's not okay? We plug into that when we study the reveal parts of Torah. But when we study Kabbalah, we plug into not just what God wants and how God thinks, but we plug into the essence of who God is. We plug into the core of, 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 of the divine, of the spiritual when we study Kabbalah. And as a bonus, <laughs> as a bonus, that in turn affects who we are as human beings. We become more refined. We become more spiritual. We become more, in Yiddish, we would call it edel. You know that word edel? Edel means more refined. An edel amanch is somebody who's not coarse. They don't speak in a coarse way. They don't act in a coarse way. Coarse, I mean in a grub, in a... Um, I, you have a conversation with them. They speak edel. They act edel. They serve God edel, right? They're, they're, they're doing a mitzvah not to get recognition. They're, they're doing it in an edel fashion. They're doing it in, a, in, a, in an authentic, sincere, really, really for the right reason. This is another advantage of studying Kabbalah. Yes, yes. As Steve says, it impacts your internal ability and perspective and your outward lens approach and sensitivity 100%. And that's an advantage of studying Kabbalah over studying what we call nigla, the revealed parts of Torah. We need to study that also. We need to study the Talmud and Halacha. We need to study all of that. Right? We have to know what to do. And when we do that, we plug into God also. But Kabbalah has a special, a special flavor, which I'm sure you know and appreciate because you're here Sunday mornings. All right, so in conclusion, in conclusion, the purpose of life is to elevate from time to time to a higher state. And for human beings, that means to plug into God by studying Torah, the revealed and secrets of Torah. And all of this serves as another meditation when we find ourselves stuck in the panic of, I need to have this because it looks good. Something that would be in the category of forbidden fruit, right? When we find ourselves in that moment of, I can't think straight because I must have it. I must have the forbidden fruit. We should tell ourselves, number one, is this the best I can do, right? Is this the best I can do? There's nothing higher, there's nothing greater? Number one. And number two, my tachlis, my purpose in life is to plug in to something greater than self. My purpose is to transcend self and touch the divine. So instead of eating, Adam and Eve, instead of eating from the forbidden fruit, open up some Kabbalah and coffee from the permitted coffee beans and, and, um, and enjoy some Kabbalah, enjoy some spiritual connection. That speaks to our purpose, our true purpose, and doesn't distract us from what we're meant to do. All right, that's conclusion for today. I hope it was meaningful. I hope it resonated for you. One thing, next week we're going to continue. I may go a little bit back 
and get a running start and then continue the new information. We're going to hopefully conclude, let me just double check in my book inside. Um, we're going to, yeah, we should conclude. Yeah, it's a few pages, but we can do it. Uh, we should conclude chapter four of Discourse One next week and then have the first discourse understood well between you and I. That's the goal here. And we should have the first meditation for the first folly. So just to clarify, we have 20, hold on, um, 28 discourses in this book, right? In this book, 28 discourses. Each one has two, three, four chapters. So discourse one has four chapters. We've done most of them. We're going to finish chapter four. We did three out of four chapters. We're going to do chapter four hopefully next week. And then we'll roll on to discourse number two. All right, so that's it. So we have ammunition. So if you find yourselves caught up in some sort of pursuit that's not, uh, that's not good for us, we have a little bit of ammunition, meditation in our mind to tell ourselves this, we got higher stuff, plus our purpose is transcendence. Okay, questions, comments as we close out today. Thank you very much. I want to say Pleasure. that incredible class. I, I cried because I feel like so, so connected with the essence of the class and, and it's, it's amazing how you teach that with so much love, with so much passion, and um, and so so clear to to because it's something very abstract in a way and very sensitive but you you bring us in a way that is so so simple and so relaxed and so useful for a daily <laughs> a daily work and I, I work with transformation of, of things that you will take and through um, like fibers and, and things like, like always I thought that I can give another life more, like a new life, a new position. And, and I felt that so hard all the time. And especially when I work in the jail, like everything can, can get and elevate. And I never understand so, so well when they write in the walls, like they were, with God, it's like it's 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 amazing, like to to see this life, but always looking God. And now I understand because they always trying to elevate, no matter like where the place they are, no matter where the where they did, but with the understand, like you can elevate. Right. And this class for me is so important. I thank you very much. Pleasure. It's, a, a, a big gift. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for saying that. And very, very touching um, to, that, to, to hear you say that. And I will say that in your activities within art and within, you know, within the jail, within the prison, um, just so, so you know, and not everybody knows, but Mariana works in, in, in Chile in going into the prisons and doing art with, um, right, art? Prim uh, art with, um, with, the, with yeah, those in prison. Like, like projects like they they take something that that it's it's on the garbage and they made it to to bring like a better life like help and things like 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 a, a very kind of different things 
or presents for the families or or um, handbag with, with, with letters of communication, beautiful communication, looking for Elevate. Right. But, and, and, and it reminds them... very clear for me. Right. And it reminds everybody that even if you could feel like you, you're, you have no purpose, right? Like you, your life, God forbid, you could think is, 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 is you know, is, is, there's no purpose... It, it reminds, the, reminds us of the utility, of the, of the purpose that's still, the potential that still exists and the ability to elevate. And I think, as you said, I'm, glad, I'm, I'm, I'm very moved by the fact that it was moving for you. That the idea that, that everything is about elevation, it's about taking something of the physical universe and saying this is not just what it is. It's being able to see a new, real, a new life for this and a new life for a human being. This is the most uplifting message, I think, that anyone could ever hear, that there is something greater than what you see right here on the surface. And to be able to display that in a physical way and, and, and have through that, have that, open, that, re, that, that consciousness open up for people, amazing, amazing, amazing. But yeah, it's all, it's all connected to, the, to the, today's theme. Thank you for, for taking this concept and, and, and showing us how it, how it applies on the ground in, in a real-life situation. Thank you for sharing that. Um, questions, comments? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Susan. Just really quickly, um, I, I loved in the beginning when you talked about the seed being planted in the ground and it disintegrating, and you used the word disintegrating. And then I was thinking about something else you said, where we want to reach up to God. So I was thinking about that seed and this shell disintegrating, then the, the nutrients from the soil, then the, uh, the seed gets rooted, and then it reaches up to God, but it reintegrates. And I was thinking about that, how important integration is, a word that we use a lot, I think, in Kabbalah. And that integration, when you are studying Kabbalah, or studying the Torah, and you integrate that, the divine will of God, and then you come up out yes. and reaching for God. So Excellent. Excellent. Beautiful. Beautiful. Beautiful way of, of expressing it. The idea of letting go of self and then reaching above, but at the same time, you're right. You got to plant back in. And that's kind of what he said at the end when it comes to Kabbalah. What's, what happens when we study Kabbalah? Two things. Number one, we reach up and plug into the core of divine wisdom and it's integrated with who we are. We become more of a mensch. And all the things that we do become more menschy, <laughs> whatever, becomes more authentic and more sincere. And you can tell. Somebody who studied Kabbalah, somebody who studied and has integrated, studied as a philosophy, but has really integrated it, the way they speak, it's more refined. The way they carry themselves in the world, it's a, more, it's a more refined way of, of being. And it's more mentionable, <laughs> mentionable, right? It's more menschy. So that's, um, yeah, but great point about integration. There's disintegration and then reintegration. It's about plugging in. And that's a big theme in Kabbalah also. It, in Kabbalah, just to give you the words, it's called ratzo and shuv. Ratzo means kind of that yearning of the transcendence, and shuv means bringing it back into, into, into an integrated space, which is a key component to this. All right. 
Well, it's great to see everybody. And I want to wish you um, a year, a 2021, um, a Gregorian year filled with only good health. I agree. It's to, 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 um, uh, I want to wish you a year of, of good health and blessings and nachas and positivity and hopefulness. And as we explore today, transformation. Being able to look at ourselves and look at the world and not see things for what they are, but for what they could be. Always look at the potential. Always look at the potential, the hidden, or maybe not so hidden, beauty and value in the things around us. And that's also a message of Kabbalah. Kabbalah says there's a deeper secret here beneath the surface. And when we train ourselves to look at the deeper things, we can also train ourselves to look at the beauty within and to transform into something greater than the status quo. And this is all part of the growth mindset. Thank you for joining me today. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you guys all soon. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Pleasure. Lots of blessings for everybody. Take care.